What are you committed to? What are you committed to? If you're married, you're probably committed to your spouse. At least we hope you are. If you're a citizen of our country, you're probably committed to what? Our nation, the success of our nation, the support of our nation. If you're a parent, you're committed, or maybe you you should be committed. Maybe that's a better answer to that one. No, we're committed to raising our kids, trying to get them through uh, the educational process and all the burdens that, that, that entails. How about as a child of God, what are you committed to? Well, the Sunday school answer is I'm committed to to Jesus, right? I'm committed to follow him and to let him be my Lord and my master and to guide my life. Well, this morning I want to talk to you from Philippians about uh, a commitment that Paul calls the church at Philippi to renew. Because all of us have a temptation to drift. You know what I mean by that? We get committed to something and we get involved in it and we get going. Any of you garden? I'm not a gardener, but I drive around and I see gardens. And I see early in the season the gardens are clean and picked up and weeded and everything's going well. And then as the season goes on, any of you know what I'm talking about? The commitment fades, doesn't it? And you go, man, it's just too hot to get out there this week. So I want to, today, I'm going to skip it. That is a human experience that is common to all of us. And Paul is writing to this church and saying, look, living devoted to Jesus causes us to do something with all of our heart. But going through the motions results in just activity. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of living life just going through the motions. I want a life that's committed to Christ, that's deeply committed to who he is, and deeper and deeper engagement day by day by day, a passion, a commitment revealed in my life, and I pray you have that as well. Now, what Paul does here, I believe, is he gives us, beginning in verse 18, four life statements for the church at Philippi, how they can live the real life. And I want to share those with you this morning uh, as a word of uh, instruction, but more importantly as a word of encouragement that we might apply these in our lives. So let's pick up in the second half of verse 18, chapter 1 of Philippians, where the scripture says this, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be all at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether in life or by death. For me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is game. I think the first way we could sum up this life statement from Paul would be this way. He says, live hopefully because God placed you right here. Now, let me remind you, Paul is writing this letter not from a resort, not from an easy experience in life, not from his beach house or his mountain home. He's writing it from prison. He's writing it from a captivity that was a result of his faith in Christ and his preaching of the gospel. 
So as Paul moves forward in this letter, he speaks to this church at Philippi and reminds them that we need to live hopefully in life. Now let me remind you who these people were. The church at Philippi was a very diverse group of folks. It included wealthy people like Lydia, who was a purveyor of of purple. There were common laborers in the church. There were Roman guards in the church because the the jailer had come to know Christ as Paul was there with them. In a very real sense, their lives were lived going upstream from the culture. The culture was going one direction and they were going, no, we're going to follow Jesus. They were going a whole different way. They were going against the flood of a pagan culture. And it would have been very easy for them to say, hey, let's just go along to get along. Let's just get on with what the world is like. Let's go through a routine and not worry about it. But Paul said, no, 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 that's not how we're called to live. He says, I'm not going to live that way and I pray you don't live that way either. You've been given eternal life. You've been given power not only for a life in the afterlife, but you've given power from God for a life where? Right now, right here. A life that makes a difference. God has placed us right here, right now. He says the power of the gospel is not only a power to save, but it's a power to sustain us. It's a power to grow us. It's a power to take us through whatever we face. And so as he writes this letter from prison, he wants them to know that God, he believes, has placed him exactly where he was. We looked at earlier verses in chapter 1, and we saw he's in prison, and people are hearing the gospel even in prison. Wow. God's at work. He saw the power of living for Jesus and whatever came his way, whatever came his way was God's power at work. And so he calls them to do the same thing. They, you can live hopefully because you're in the middle. So here's, here's my, my, my working thought right here. You ready? It's this. God has placed you and me exactly where we are, where we are right now. You ever look around in life and go, hmm, I wish I had. I wish I lived. I wish I was. One of the things I love about traveling uh, we don't play the radio in our car when we travel because we can't agree on the style of music nor the volume of music. Um, so we drive a lot in silence. And then I look back and the kids have all got earbuds on anyway, so I guess I could have played what I wanted because they can't hear what I'm playing in the car anyhow. But anyway, that's a whole other discussion for another day. But one of the things I love about traveling is looking at all the different ways people live and all the different situations in which they live and and to have conversations with people about their lives in different places. And I'm reminded that God has placed them where they are right now and God has placed me where I am right now. He's placed you where you are where? Right now. There's something about us, though, that we love to look out and and see the other side of the fence. It's not just cows that like to stick their head through the fence because the grass is greener on the other side. It's you and me as well, isn't it? We say, well, if I was over there, my life would be. Now, let me tell you, if I was living in prison like Paul was when he wrote this letter because I've been preaching the gospel, I would have been very much tempted to think there's got to be something better than this, but not Paul. And not those who recognize the planting power of God in our lives. Stop to consider where you live right now is exactly where God wants you right now. You go, okay. You may be facing serious trials. You may be experiencing painful circumstances. You may be surrounded by troublesome people. But if God has placed you where you are, then that is where God wants you. So what are you going to do about it? 
That approach to life takes a comprehensive view of life where we begin to step back and go, okay, God, you're bigger than me. You're stronger than me. You're powerful, more, more powerful than me. You're more wise than I am. And you know exactly what you want to do in my life. You know, over in the, 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 the prophecies of Isaiah, he, he writes some interesting words. Now, Isaiah, he had a tough life too. You know, if you ever noticed, most of the characters in the Bible had tough lives. I'm starting to come to a working conclusion that I think God wants us to be more uncomfortable than comfortable because that's when he's able to work in our lives. But Isaiah was struggling with a nation gone off the rails, and he hears God say this to him. He says, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. I believe God wants to do the same thing in our lives. You go, well, I don't know if I can handle being where I'm at. You've got to be better over there. No, God is right where you are, and God is at work right where you're at, and he wants to accomplish things right through you where you are right now. He has placed us exactly where he's placed us. And we can hold fast to that truth. So, so statement number one is live hopefully. We need to live our lives hopeful that God has us right where he wants us and believe that he can accomplish something right here. Number two, live expectantly. Why? Because God moves through people. Any of you people? People? Hello? We're all people, Right? We are the conduits through whom God typically works the most. You go, me? No, no, not me, you. No, not you, me, us. He works through people just like us. Look at verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, Paul says. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire my, what my want to is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, look at this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So, so life statement one is to live hopefully. Second life statement is to live expectantly expecting God to move. Hope is believing God is where we are. Living expectantly is living with a belief that God can use people like us. Aren't you glad God uses people just like you and me? Well, I'm nobody special. Me either. But he uses people like us. Paul was fully aware of his shortcomings. He knew he wasn't the most handsome. He knew he wasn't the most polished. He knew he wasn't the most physically fit. He knew he wasn't the smartest guy. But he was firmly convinced that God uses people just like him to accomplish his great purposes. Do you believe God uses you? We catch a sense that Paul is fully prepared to leave the world. In fact, I think he's kind of telling us, you know, it would be really great if God would just take me home. But he's not done with me because he wants to work through people like me. I don't think this is hubris. I don't think this is arrogance on his part. Rather, it's a recognition that says this. God chooses to use people like you and me to accomplish his greater purposes. A lot of us think, well, God can't use me. I've got this problem, and i got this problem, i got this mess, and i got this mess. Let me ask you this. You really think that all of your trash in your past is bigger than the power of holy God? I'm here to tell you it's not. He can use you. 
And because Paul saw life this way, he believed he needed to stay busy as long as he was alive. And he was ready to die, but he says, God, you're not done with me. So my life, he says, is going to be centered on God. And I'm going to find joy in being able to enable others to accomplish great things in the kingdom of God. I'm here not just to serve God, but to encourage others. I'm living expectantly saying, God, you're going to do something. And that's kind of the thought I want you to catch. That's not kind of, that's the thought I want you to catch is we need to wake up every day. Every day, anticipating a holy mission from God for us today. So many of us get up and say, well, today I have to clean house. Today I have to take kids to school. Today I have to cut the grass. Today I have to this, I have to that. Can I tell you something? There's something greater that God has for you every single day of your life. And it's some holy mission he has for you. And it may not be a grand thing like taking the gospel to India, but it'll be something that he has specifically designed for you to accomplish. And you say, well, but, but, but Paul woke up in prison. Can I tell you something? Paul absolutely woke up where? In prison. But can I tell you something? Prisons don't always have walls. Sometimes prisons don't just have walls and bars. Sometimes they have boundaries and limitations. They have limitations that we place on ourselves. And in many ways, each of us wakes up every day in a prison that we've made of our own where we don't live expectantly. We say, God can't. I'm here to tell you God can and God will. Is it possible the reason we miss the greater blessings of God is because we just aren't looking for them? I firmly believe, like Henry Black had been taught a number of years ago, God is always at work. He's always moving around us. He's always accomplishing great things. And it's not a question of whether God's at work. The question is, is do we see him at work? Do we join him at work? Are we participating in the greater kingdom purpose that he's about or not? We don't wake up with an anticipation. We miss it. We have to wake up saying, okay, God, I know you're going to accomplish something. I know you can use me. I know you're, ex- I, I just expect that you're going to move today. And so we live with an, ex- so, but, but when we take our eyes off Jesus, we miss it. Why would we want to do that? Paul goes on to tell the church at Ephesus, we saw this in our prayer time earlier, for we are what? His workmanship. Take, take some time this afternoon and focus on that first phrase and make it personal. I am God's workmanship. Most of us think, oh, I'm just pitiful. I'm worthless. I'm no good. Or, or the other side, we think, well, I'm so good that God, I'm just, God just needs me. Let me tell you something. You are his workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared long before you ever existed that we would then walk in them. God wants to use people like you. Know, listen, we don't have to, uh, to, 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 to get it all figured out now, but he's never intended for us, intended for us to live in anger or bitterness, to live in frustration or negativity. He says, I want you to live with this expectancy. God, you've got something. Something that's worth having. So I think his first statement is live hopeful. The second one is to live expectant. The third one is to live devotedly. Devotedly, what do you mean? Devoted to what? Devoted to God and devoted to man. The scriptures tell us that that we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all all of our strength, our soul, and our might, and to love our neighbor as what? Ourselves. 
I think there's a two-way direction here. Look at this. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am, at, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in what? If you don't mind highlighting in your Bible, highlight that phrase, however it is translated in your particular translation. Stand firm in what? One spirit. With one mind. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that is from God. Paul calls them to be devoted to the Lord and to one another in whatever comes. Now, Paul wasn't hanging out in Philippi when he wrote this letter. Where was he? He was in prison. We don't know exactly which prison. I don't know if it matters. A prison is a prison. He was in prison. He wasn't there. He didn't know if he would ever see them again, but he has heard about what they're doing and what they're going on. You know, he had been reading Facebook about them. Somebody had sent him a text. They didn't have any of that stuff. So how did he hear about them? Word of mouth, just like we are today. We just are faster at it now because we've got all the technology to spread it quicker. And what the members of the church at Philippi did reflected not only on them as individuals, but on them collectively. He says, you need to stand together, live devoted to one another, because God will bless that unity. He'll bless that working together. His hope for them is they would be devoted to God and devoted to each other. You know, I don't think Paul uh, ever heard Jesus teach in person much, if at all. Uh, He was Saul back in those days, and he probably would have never been around uh, a guy like Jesus talking uh, too much. But uh, he'd surely heard of how Jesus challenged the religious leaders. He'd heard of the words that he would say to the Pharisees as they would sometimes come to him and bring up some of these crazy things they would, they would do. And if you remember, there was a time when, when the, the Pharisees came to Jesus and accused him of, of being possessed by a demon. Do you, do you remember that story? You're going, they, they accused Jesus of a, how, yeah. And here was Jesus' response to them. He said in Mark 3.25, if, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. They didn't have to agree on every non-essential. They didn't have to agree to be close buddies with everybody. But they did have to find a common ground of the gospel. Because God blesses Unity. Unity on the essentials of the faith. And that leads me to this thought. The manner we treat one another reveals our true connection with God. You know, the church at Philippi, at least in this letter, doesn't seem to have a lot of serious fellowship issues. Uh, later in the book, there's two ladies who are kind of arguing, but, but that's even that doesn't seem to be hugely controversial they don't seem to have fellowship. There, nothing seems to be out of order. Nothing, especially <laughs> compare Philippi to Corinth. Oh, my goodness, you know, what a difference of two churches. But how easily that could change. You know, one of the things I've noticed over the years, uh, y'all know I like church history just a little bit. Um, and I love to read the stories and look at different churches and different things. But I, I, let me tell you what, one I came across a few years ago, uh, personal, firsthand, driving up the road. Uh, you know, churches are supposed to plant new churches. That's part of the kingdom work. But sometimes churches um, create new churches because they can't get along. We'll just leave it at that. 
And down in deep east Texas, I don't remember which highway it on, it's on. It's in the Palestine area. But uh, you're driving down that road. You, you, you come by a church called Harmony Baptist. That's a beautiful name for a church, isn't it? Harmony. Harmony. That just sounds so peaceful, so so wonderful. Well, if you keep driving, you'll find another church called New Harmony Baptist Church. Apparently, the harmony at Harmony wasn't harmony enough, but they needed more harmony. They got New Harmony. And then the really funny thing is if you keep driving, you'll come up upon New Harmony number two. It seems harmony was, shall we say, rather elusive. But, you know, local congregations don't have to actually literally split to be divided. That happens when devotion to God and to his church falters, resulting in diminished effectiveness at best and destructive behavior at worst. Because who gave us the license to play God and say, this is my church? No, let me tell you something. This is not my church. This is God's church. And my prayer is that God will do what he wants to right here. In spite of me, if it has to be. Our calling instead is to live devoted to God and to each other as followers of Jesus. And as we do that, we find the great blessings of God. Look at Romans twelve eighteen when Paul told the church at Rome what to do. He said, if possible, so, as far, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We can't make anyone decide to work together, but we can surely do everything we can do to bring about the better things in life. So live hopefully, live expectantly, live devotedly. Third, live gratefully because God leads through it all. Look at verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that I saw, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, so his fourth call, I think, is to live gratefully. If we, if we really believe, if we truly believe God has placed us right where we are, and if we really are living with an expectant attitude that God can do something that we can't, and if we're working for unity as we're devoted to God and not trying to find new harmony number three, we will surely live our lives centered on the pathway of gratefulness. You know, I can imagine easily Paul looking back on his life and he'd had a sense of contentment and gratefulness that God used him. Now, let me remind you, he faced numerous hardships in life. He faced verbal abuse in life. He was stoned in life. He was left for dead in life. You're going, wait a second, he was grateful for all that? Yeah, he also found himself in more legal trouble than just about anybody in the scriptures. And he had to live an unsettled life because he kept moving from place to place to place to place. Can you imagine packing up every few years and moving again and again and again? But through it all, he experienced the leading hand of God. You see, the worst day living exactly where God intends you to be is far better than the very best day living for yourself. Suffering for the sake of the gospel is a blessing for which he was grateful. Understand God uses that kind of suffering to mold his people in the image. And God leads through times of trial, not not to destroy us, but to transform us. And that's what Paul found in his life, that God was taking him through tough trial after tough trial, after difficult situation, after hardship after hardship. Why? Because God was trying to destroy him? No, because God was working to perfect him. 
and leading him through it all. That leads me to one last thought. It's a choice that we have to make or we get to make. We can choose to blank in the face of trials and suffering. You say, well, there's a word already up there. Yeah, I know, but you could put a blank there if you wanted to and write your own word in. I can choose to complain and gripe in the face of trials and suffering. I can choose to lay down and die in the face of trials and suffering. I can roll over and give up in the face of trials and suffering. But I believe Paul and I believe us as children of God sitting right here together talking about this passage or thinking about this passage is that we want to be people that do what Philippians do. Choose to what? To rejoice. I will rejoice. I want to lift his name and praise him. I want my life to be filled with his presence and his grace and his mercy and his goodness. Don't you? Choose to rejoice in the face of it all. Yeah, you're thinking, yeah, Paul, yeah, uh you're in jail, dude. Don't you understand? I'm dealing with cancer. Don't you understand? I'm dealing with Alzheimer's. Don't you understand? I'm dealing with dementia. Don't you understand? I'm dealing with children who are rebellious. Don't you understand? I'm dealing with these things and those things and that. It doesn't matter what's going on. The the what matters is our response to what we're going through. Choose to rejoice in the face of it all. I don't think Paul enjoyed suffering, but he saw it as God at work in his life. He had a viewpoint on suffering that is maybe one we need to grab. And maybe that approach is what we need to add to our lives. And we say, I'm going to follow Jesus. And even though it may result in difficult days and hardship and trials and struggles and being left for dead, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to rejoice. Paul summed up these feelings about suffering when he wrote this to the church at Rome. Not only that, but we, 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 but we rejoice in our sufferings. Just stop right there, preacher. That doesn't really say that. You've misquoted that. Surely, no. He says, I'm going to rejoice in my sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Maybe we need to choose to look at trials more like Paul did. He says, I'm going to rejoice. God, thank you for counting me worthy to suffer for your name. Instead of going, God, I can't believe you let that trial come in my life. I can't believe you let that hardship come in my life. I can't believe you let that illness come in my life. God, it's all your fault. God, it's all your credit. It's all for your praise. See, the world tells us that trials are bad and they come to us because we've done something wrong. And it's that idea, that pagan idea, by the way, of karma. You get what you deserve. Can I tell you something? If I got what I deserved, I would get hell. But grace says I get what I don't deserve. God's presence, God's joy. The Bible says trials may or may not come from God. It may be something that you've done that was completely boneheaded and messed up what you were doing in life. But God says, I will bring something out of that. And you can rejoice in those trials. Don't run from the trials of life. Let God lead you through the trials of life. And find yourself faithful. Speaking of life, do you know Jesus? See, the only way all this Bible stuff works 
There's great principles in there, but there's the only reason it works is because we have a relationship with God. And if you don't know Jesus, that's the place to start. Maybe you need to give your heart to Christ. You say, preacher, how do I do that? It's real hard. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I want to have a life of joy. I want to be able to rejoice in the face of trials. I want to be able to walk with confidence that you're with me and I'm not alone. If you can tell God I'm a sinner and then say, Jesus, would you come into my heart and forgive me? He'll come in. It's that simple. What do you stand for? What's your life look like? Is it counting for something bigger than yourself? What legacy will you leave?